hostile architecture. Whether it's purposefully uncomfortable benches or placing rocks where homeless people sleep, you've probably seen a photo or two of some examples online. The most ridiculous of them can look like modern art sculptures and the boldest usually feature spikes in their design. Some examples aren't so obvious, like high-pitched ringing or blue lights, but they fit into this category all the same. Do these designs actually help anyone? Are they meant as a preventative tool or aim to hurt people they target? And when does defensive architecture become hostile? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode. I'm the Illuminati and today we're going to be talking about hostile architecture. This script will briefly discuss death, drug use, and just general cruelty to people. So things will get a bit heavy here and there, but I think it's an incredibly important topic that needs some light shed on it. Thank you so much for joining me today. And let's start as always with the background of the topic. Where does hostile architecture even come from? The modern idea of shaping human behavior by sculpting the environment around them started in the 1800s when Baron George's Eugene Haussmann remodeled Paris after the 1848 Workers' Revolution. As you may know, if you've seen Les Mis, workers created blockades across the streets with spare furniture, cobblestones, wood, and waste. It made it difficult for the French military to navigate troops and cannons. So when Haussmann designed the streets, he replaced many narrow streets with wide boulevards. They were essentially barricade-proof and meant to repress any similar rebellions. By contrast, public housing pioneer Elizabeth Wood consistently advocated for racial and economic integration. As the founding director of the Chicago Housing Authority, Wood was seen as Chicago's largest landlord and she supervised the buildings and management for homes of thousands of families. The New York Times wrote that she even suggested courtyards and indoor gathering places have an inviting design for loitering and Wood fought against anyone who stood in the way of building these homes. Unfortunately, she was replaced by administrators that followed a policy of racial segregation. Though Wood wanted visibility within housing complexes, guidelines for security and open spaces, her ideas weren't widely put into practice. However, the ideas of Robert Moses certainly were. According to the Washington Post, at the peak of his influence, Moses was more powerful than any mayor or governor, even though he was not elected. He built highways, bridges, hundreds of playgrounds, sports fields, benches, state parks, and parkways. Infuriatingly, after designing all of these beautiful locations, he also made it difficult for people of color to visit them. For example, the New York Historical Society explains that Long Island parkways had a clearance too low for buses to pass under. Anyone that couldn't travel by car, such as low-income families, were effectively barred from Moses' parks. A 1974 biography about Robert Moses entitled The Power Broker, written by Robert Caro, and generally regarded as one of the top 100 greatest works of nonfiction. He absolutely decimated Moses' reputation. Caro claimed that Moses considered black people dirty, required buses to obtain permits to enter state parks, which wasn't an easy feat in of itself, and buses carrying black people were discouraged from using white people benches. That's in quotes. Apparently, Moses was also convinced that black people don't like cold water for some reason, so he deliberately kept the pool by one of his beloved beaches, Jones Beach, icy cold. Caro received so much of his inside information from Sidney M. Shapiro, one of Moses's close associates and a former chief engineer and general manager of the Long Island State Park Commission. 
Shapiro isn't the only source that calls Moses racist either. Paul Kern, a law secretary at City Hall under Mayor LaGuardia also verified these claims and Kern and Paul Windells, LaGuardia's corporation counsel, were the sources for the details on bus permits and pool temperature. Data gathered by Caro does match up with this version of events as few black people attended these parks back in 1967. They were only 11% of visitors. There are those that disagree with Caro's work, claiming that the height of the parkways was due to cost and it is possible to get to Jones Beach by train and bus if you seek alternative routes. However, a Cornell University historian named Thomas Campanella disputed these claims fairly recently and argued that Shapiro was in fact right. I have always had doubts about the veracity of the Jim Crow bridge story. There is little question that Moses held patently bigoted views. He wrote in an article for Bloomberg News in 2017. But then he recorded clearances for 20 bridges, viaducts, and overpasses on other parkways built at the same time and compared them to measures of the 20 original bridges and overpasses on the Southern State Parkway. It turned out clearances are substantially lower on the Moses Parkway. While Moses seemed to believe pushing black people out of spaces was appropriate, others saw environmental design differently. In 1971, C. Ray Jeffrey published the book, Crime Prevention Through Environmental Design. Though CPTED theory didn't catch on right away, it did represent an advancement in the field of criminological study. Matthew Robinson at the Appalachian State University Department of Political Science and Criminal Justice sums up the theory as this. Identifying conditions of the physical and social environment that provide opportunities for or precipitate criminal acts and the alteration of those conditions so that no crimes occur. In other words, a poor environment equals more crime. It seems simple enough, right? Well, this is also the concept behind the broken window theory proposed by James Q. Wilson and George Kelling in 1982. Wilson and Kelling believed crime was born from disorder and if incivility in a community is eliminated, crime will be less prevalent as a result. New York City especially took this theory to heart and in 1994, the police commissioner introduced a broken windows based quality of life initiative. Crimes like panhandling, disorderly behavior, public drinking, unsolicited windshield washing and street prostitution were all taken far more seriously. And it seemed to work. By the time Bratton resigned in 1996, felonies were down almost 40%. It's important to take this at face value as correlation does not equal causation and the amount of misdemeanors did increase. On the other hand, are these harsher punishments for smaller offenses actually keeping a community safer or simply driving people away? Britannica argues that there's a strong support towards this narrative and that when these policies force away the middle class that can often afford to leave, they create an economically disadvantaged community. The Columbia Spectator addresses the broken windows policies themselves and explains that when you clean up communities in this way, it's a form of gentrification. Poor people, often people of color, are forced out when areas become too expensive to afford. Other sources such as Scholar Strategy Network call the broken windows theory one of the most influential and controversial perspectives generated by the social sciences in the last 30 years. Despite the little evidence that it's true, They argue that disorder may not elicit crime, but it provides advantages for already existing or would-be criminals and creates stress, which can lead to poor mental health. There are alternatives for harsher punishments too. Researchers Daniel O'Brien, Chelsea Farrell, and Brandon Welsh state that neighborhood cleanups and maintenance can help residents feel more connected to their community as they work to solve a concrete visual problem together. It creates a sense of ownership in the neighborhood, can potentially reduce the risk of interpersonal conflicts and provide a sense of optimism to a community. Another alternative is rather obvious. Instead of complaining about abandoned buildings in poor neighborhoods, why not convert them into shelters? Or at the very least, why not maintain them? 
there's already a definitive connection between abandoned properties and crime. In 1993, the criminologist William Spellman stated that in Austin, crime rates on blocks with open abandoned buildings were twice as high as rates on matched blocks without open buildings. In 2005, sociologist Lance Hannon said that in New York City's highest poverty areas, the number of abandoned homes was correlated with homicide rates. Therefore, when Charles Bramis, the chair of epidemiology at Columbia University and John McDonald, a University of Pennsylvania criminologist, were given the opportunity to study this connection more in depth, they seized it. A member from the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society was convinced that the tens of thousands of empty lots in Pennsylvania drove up violent crime. To combat this, the PHS had remediated about a 10th of the 49,690 lots in Philly by clearing trash, planting grass and trees, and installing fencing. When Branis studied these locations, he found a 39% reduction in gun violence around remediated abandoned buildings and a 5% reduction around remediated lots. Just as important is the fact that no evidence pointed to the violence shifting to nearby places and the effect lasted for anywhere between one to almost four years. So yes, graffiti, dilapidated and abandoned properties and other broken windows may not help and may even harm a community. But the connection between that and organized crime is a stretch at best, and stricter punishments for these broken window offenses aren't proven to help. At this point, you might be asking what this has to do with hostile architecture. Theoretically, broken window theory says that the worse a neighborhood looks and the more panhandling or unsolicited windshield washing there is, crime is more likely to occur. It also means by this theory that there will be more homeless people, which will also equate to more crime by this unproven theory's standards, of course. Enter hostile architecture, designed to keep homeless people, skateboarders, addicts, and other examples of these broken windows away. Although forms of hostile architecture are quite old, the concept has evolved and become more widespread in recent years. Kara Chelu, a Toronto-based researcher and public space advocate states, hostile architecture has really ramped up in the last 15 years or so since there's been an increased focus on public space in city building. We're creating public spaces, but within public spaces, there is the intention to keep public space orderly and maintained to save on policing costs or to reduce maintenance and vandalism. You may have never noticed just how hostile the architecture of a city can be if you haven't been homeless. Alex Andreu wrote an article for The Guardian in 2015 stating that he sure didn't until he became homeless in 2009 after the economic crisis. Alex was living in London at the time and states that two places in particular were especially beloved by him and other homeless people. One was London's underground circle line, a continually moving railway, or for Alex, a safe, dry, warm container, like a giant needle stitching London's center into place. Now, however, the circle line is no longer a full circle, putting a stop to the continual travel. The second was a bench off Pentonville Road, Alex referred to it as an old wooden bench made concave and smooth by thousands of buttocks underneath a sycamore with foliage so thick that only the most persistent rain could penetrate it. Sheltered and warm against a wall behind which a generator of some sort radiated heat. One morning, that bench was replaced by a convex metal perch with three armrests. Defensive architecture doesn't happen by accident. As the article puts it, It is a sort of unkindness that is considered, designed, approved, funded, and made real with the explicit motive to exclude and harass. Consider the Camden bench, which looks less like a bench and more like a sloped concrete block. Its creators claim that it's been designed to resist criminal and antisocial behavior. It's extremely difficult to lie on, skate on, or hide any contraband in. The benches are apparently covered in a waterproof anti-graffiti coating too. UK-based artist Stuart Semple says that the Camden benches are the best example of the worst kind of design. 
and that the designers of the bench themselves seem proud of the fact that it's anti-everything. Others say it's not anti-everything, just anti-homeless and anti-youth. Savik, a PhD student in Switzerland, co-authored a book on the subject. He states that unpleasant designs are silent agents there to, quote, make things pleasant, but for a very particular audience. So in the general case, it's pleasant for families, but not pleasant for junkies, end quote. While making it more difficult to hide illicit materials in park benches isn't inherently a bad thing, the motive and evidence behind these designs are questionable and insufficient. Dr. Baker, lecturer in human geography at the university, says that much of the hostile architecture allows us to avert our gaze from poverty and displace the visibility and profound inequality. A hostile architecture might make some people more comfortable not seeing the extent of the problems of homelessness in their community, but is that a good thing? Shouldn't we be less avoidant, less concerned about our comfort levels and more concerned about resolving the core issue? Dr. Baker states, there's a responsibility on the part of people involved in creating affordable housing, in creating decent living wages to do their part to address homelessness. If our environment and these cities are supposed to reflect the world we desire and want to live in, then hostile design should give us pause. However, supporters of hostile architecture prefer to call it defensive architecture. Dean Harvey, the co-founder of a company that produces furniture like this, states that it's a solution against drug drops. When we design a piece of furniture, we're not thinking about it being antisocial. We're thinking about that piece being used in the public realm rather than as a skating pit or for grinding an object or as a hangout. There are some forms of hostile or defensive architecture that do genuinely serve the purpose to defend. Bollards such as concrete barriers and planters, hardened street furniture and water fountains all surround DC's federal buildings, museums, and monuments. They're meant to stop any unwanted entry from vehicles, especially those that might be carrying bombs. Some retractable bollards were developed after the deadly lorry attacks in Nice and Berlin, and they can stop a 7.5 ton truck going at 80 kilometers per hour. Others have a post and arm shape to provide security to storefronts and a place for bicycles to park as well. There is a downside to some forms of bollards such as hardened benches, definitely are not ideal seats, and they can limit public space, making it harder to navigate for people with disabilities. Even so, to pretend that every single type of defensive architecture is hostile would be disingenuous. Unfortunately, it is the hostile architecture that seems to go too far. And before we take a look at how far these things have gotten, let's take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. It's the holiday season. It's the season of giving, but you've already given enough to your internet service provider. If you haven't been using ExpressVPN every time you've gone online this year, you may have been giving away information to your ISP. Now, I'm not just talking about the enormous internet bill you have to pay every month. Every time you go online without ExpressVPN, your provider like AT&T or Verizon, Comcast, whoever, can see and log every single website that you visit. Oh, and they can sell that too. So that's why I'm kind of done giving my internet service provider free information, which is why I go online with ExpressVPN. It's the app that encrypts and reroutes 100% of my network data through their secure servers so my provider can't see or sell a thing. And it's time for you to also start taking back your internet privacy today with the VPN that's rated number one by TechRadar and Mashable. Make sure you visit expressvpn.com prism to get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com prism, expressvpn.com prism to learn more. The holidays are hectic, but HelloFresh can help keep things simple with recipes that cut back on meal prep and cleanup so you can spend less time in the kitchen and more quality time with your friends and family. 
HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every single week, including vegetarian options, calorie smart, and gourmet options, providing plenty of variety for everyone at the dinner table. And HelloFresh meals are ready in around 30 minutes or less. Plus with their quick and easy meals, 20 minute recipes or low prep and easy cleanup, you can get food on the table quicker so you can spend more holiday time with your loved ones. I love the really easy caprese sandwiches and flatbreads. Those things are done super fast. They're tasty, they're delicious. And most importantly, they can be delivered every single week very quickly through HelloFresh. So there's nothing really to lose except to try HelloFresh today. If you wanna check them out, make sure you go to hellofresh.com slash prism14 and use code prism14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. Again, that's hellofresh.com slash prism14 and use code prism14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. Let's discuss some designs that truly put the word hostile in hostile architecture. Spikes, for example, you've probably seen them before, whether under a road bridge in China, outside Selfridges in Manchester, or in various cities throughout the US. Some have been installed outside businesses following customer complaints about littering and smoking, whereas others have been put in trees or on top of building signs as a form of pest control. Anti-loitering spikes on window edges in Paris may seem harmless, but it isn't a stretch to say that hostile architecture has the potential to be dangerous. One man was impaled by six inch spikes outside St. Mary Abbott's near Kensington High Street. As the fence is right beside an equally tall hedge, it's very difficult to see. The man had been in the hospital for hitting his head recently, and he was still wearing hospital pajamas under his clothes when he was found. It took weeks for him to be identified as he was an immigrant, and he lost his job in 2013 and had struggled with alcoholism and depression. Being unable to find another job, he had been living on the streets out of desperation before his death in 2015. Ed Bourd, the man who found his body, said that people were walking by without even noticing, despite the blood pooled on the ground around him. That was one of the things I talked to the therapist about, Bourd said. It upset me that someone like that spends their life not being noticed, and even in their last moments, people still walk past. Although it's unclear if these fence posts were specifically designed to keep homeless people away, the point remains the same. Many people don't pay attention to these problems right in front of them. Whether that's recognizing the hostility in their environments or a dying man at their feet, these conversations need to be had, no matter how uncomfortable they might be. There are those that have tried to do exactly that and express how grim hostile architecture can be through art. Sculptor Fabian Brunsing, for example, created a pay bench, an art installation of a park bench with metal spikes that only retracted when someone fed it a coin. This was a satirical piece, but unfortunately Chinese officials did not get that memo. In fact, they thought it was such a great idea that they actually installed similar benches in Yantai Park. Sometimes hostile architecture is bold and openly displayed like this. Sometimes you may not notice it without looking closely. One online compilation entitled Dismal Garden has thousands of photos ranging from bollards that look like what you'd find outside a Target to spikes outside a McDonald's. There are stealth CCTV cameras in London, anti-graffiti seats on subway seats in Germany, and devices that keep large trash items outside rubbish bins in Copenhagen. None of these particularly scream hostile to me, but in some cases practical. The seats look easier to wash and the bar over the trash would stop it from overflowing too quickly. But the spikes outside of banks, the quote, bum-free metal walls in San Francisco, and the countless amounts of anti-loitering ironwork there are are for one reason only, to drive away homeless people. 
In the Canadian city of Calgary, authorities have covered the ground beneath the Louise Bridge with bowling ball sized rocks in an attempt to make the area more uncomfortable for the homeless people that had taken up shelter there. Public benches around the world have been redesigned to feature another armrest, which conveniently makes them harder for people to sleep on. But if all else fails, there have always been sprinklers. And I'm not talking about ones that may be in parks as using sprinklers for greenery would actually make sense. Instead, one tanning salon in Bristol installed a sprinkler system to deal with, quote, severe antisocial behavior that accompanied rough sleepers. Campaigner and founder of Help Bristol's Homeless, Jasper Thompson said the measure was a bit draconian and added that he thought it was, quote, quite remarkable in 2018 that you'd go to such measures to stop someone from sleeping in your doorway. I appreciate there's an issue with homelessness in the town center, but I don't think it is the right way to go about it, end quote. A spokesperson for the salon argued that their shop was consistently littered with bedding, broken glass, food waste, feces, and syringes when they opened. A shop shouldn't have to deal with these problems, especially not the syringes. That can be dangerous if any employee had to handle them or if the shop had any children entering. Yet, do sprinklers actually solve this issue? Well, the answer is of course not. What's to stop someone from sleeping at a business across the street instead? Hostile architecture is like putting a bandage on a gaping flesh wound, then ignoring the problem entirely. It may give one party a sense of accomplishment, but meanwhile, those suffering continue to do so and are swept aside when they desperately need help. This next example is particularly messed up and hilarious, but not in a funny way. These sprinkler systems are actually bad enough when they're attached to businesses, but one San Francisco church faced massive backlash in 2015 when they installed water sprinklers above their doorways to douse homeless people seeking shelter. One Guardian article that addresses the issue starts their story with an appropriate quote from the Bible itself. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. A church, a nonprofit that is meant to help a community turned its back on those most in need. Local media were quick to call out St. Mary's Cathedral, home of the Catholic Archbishop of San Francisco, and they backpedaled almost immediately. KCBS radio in particular spoke out about how homeless people and their belongings were being soaked and church officials started dismantling the sprinklers and claiming it was all a misunderstanding. The spokesperson for the archdiocese admitted that they had added them several years prior to deter homeless people from sleeping in the alcoves of the church, but then stated it was obviously never the church's intention to actually douse homeless people with water. So the sprinklers were meant to keep homeless people away, but once someone got wet, the church said, well, we never thought anyone would actually get doused. Is this all just a big misunderstanding? I just, it just doesn't add up, does it? KCBS also spoke with a homeless man named Robert on their show who made the point that as inconvenient as the sprinklers were, they can also be dangerous. We were going to be wet there all night. So hypothermia, cold, all that other stuff could set in. It's keeping the church clean, but it could make people sick, he stated. Once again, this form of hostile architecture does nothing to address the core problems of homelessness or attempt to help these people in any way. Seattle has even used bike racks to discourage homeless camping. Rather than spend their funding on shelters, the Department of Transportation there spent almost several thousand dollars for bike racks that have gone almost entirely unused, just to prevent an area beneath a viaduct from being camped in. One resident says that many of the homeless people in that area were women and children, and certainly not dangers that some neighbors made them out to be. Sarah Rankin, a law professor who directs Seattle University's Homeless Rights Advocacy Project stated, I do think cities are getting much more savvy in their approaches. They realize that offense is blatantly clear to everyone, but if you install bike racks or boulders that are somehow serving other functions, it's very disingenuous would be putting it mildly. There are plenty of other tone death forms of hostile architecture too. Take deflectors, for example. Some may have spikes. Some may just be curved materials placed in corners. 
Across the world, whether in Europe or San Francisco, these pee-proof designs have UV-treated paint and force urine to bounce back on the person urinating. It's designed to discourage public urination. It's not to say that I'm advocating for public urination, but you know, maybe some more public toilets instead. Many people that experience homelessness have literally nowhere else to go. Restrooms and businesses are often for customers only. And as the pandemic continues, the problem has only gotten worse. In New York City, chains like Starbucks and McDonald's where homeless people were sometimes allowed to go in and use the restroom are now turning people away. Worse than that, temporary portable toilets have been taken out of operation after they were vandalized, leaving those that rely on cafes and eateries for public restrooms and free water with fewer and fewer places to go. Urinating outside isn't ideal for anyone, but for many homeless people, there's no consistent alternative. While the San Francisco Public Works does advertise 25 self-cleaning public toilets accessible for people with disabilities and a list of other public toilets, a number are closed due to renovation and few are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As one writer for Forbes, Janet Stemwettel puts it, figuring out how to address the root causes of public urination and how to recognize the humanity of homeless people might leave fewer San Francisco residents feeling pissed off and pissed on. Although we could continue on this route for quite some time, let's talk about other hostile architecture designs that target young people and addicts. It's important to recognize that as hostile architecture continues to spread, it can potentially hurt more and more marginalized people. San Francisco, which BBC calls the birthplace of street skateboarding, was one of the first cities to introduce designs to stop skaters. Pig ears or metal flanges added to the corners of pavements and low walls are meant to send a skateboarder tumbling if you try to jump or slide along them. Although this solution seems like it can cause injury to skaters, there's a lot of YouTube videos out there where skateboarders show how you can tamper with the studs and pop them right off. Now, I definitely don't recommend that, but the point here is that once again, it's not addressing a root problem. It seems like if there were more skate parks or designated areas for skateboarding, then pig ears wouldn't be as necessary. Then there are those sounds that both skateboarders and homeless people have to contend with. The mosquito is a high frequency sound most audible to teens and young adults, meant to put an end to loitering. There's been quite a bit of debate around if these devices are needlessly cruel or genuinely effective. Great Barrington, Massachusetts banned the device after a movie theater owner installed one and Milford, Connecticut opted to increase police patrols instead of installing the mosquito in their parks. On the other hand, there's been no public outcry or complaints in Columbia, South Carolina, where a mosquito was installed in a parking lot where students gather after high school games. We'd have crowds gather in parking lots and there'd be the usual trash talk, then you'd have fights, said Rick McGee, the school's district emergency services manager. Now there's no confrontation at all. They just get aggravated and leave within a few minutes. But if the mosquito doesn't affect you, as it's meant to irritate young adults, then there's always kids music. Lake Pavilion in West Palm Beach, Florida has been known to blare grating songs like Baby Shark and Raining Tacos on loop to prevent homeless people from sleeping near an event center. In 2018, Germany announced plans to use atonal music at railway stations, an experimental type of music that can be unsettling and discomforting as it doesn't rely on the traditional harmonies and rhythms we're used to hearing. These sounds may not be literally or physically attacking people in the way that other forms of hostile architecture have, but once again, they continue to enable this pattern of band-aid solutions and ignoring the real problems. Other forms of hostile architecture can even include lighting. This particular case is far more debatable as lighting isn't really particularly hostile as it appeared throughout my research, but it is worth mentioning. Some public restrooms like one in New Kensington, Pennsylvania have taken to installing blue lights in an effort to make it difficult for addicts to see their veins. Unsurprisingly though, this is yet another bandaged solution that according to a 2013 study from the Harm Reduction Journal, probably won't do any good. 
If anything, with veins being harder to see, a potential addict would still be likely to use and more likely to suffer an injury like an abscess or damage to their veins. Former addicts interviewed by NPR claim that if they'd been in a blue lit restroom, it wouldn't have stopped them from using. Critics of the blue lights have gone so far as to call it an act of violence against injection drug users because of the potential injury and argue that proven strategies should be implemented instead, like universal access to medically assisted treatment or supervised injection facilities. Whether or not you agree these blue lights are a form of hostile architecture, they do serve the same purpose, driving a group of people from a public space with little or no regard for their safety. There are other forms of hostile architecture out there, but before we finish out today's episode, I wanted to briefly talk about the people that are fighting back against these methods. Just as there are designers that create uncomfortable benches and spikes, there are those that want to make environments less hostile too. German artist Oliver Schau has invented a bright yellow, flexible and comfortable drainage pipe that can be wrapped around bridges, trusses, bike tracks, handrails and trees to create seats where there weren't any before. Sarah Ross in the United States designed an Arca suit, which while it sounds a bit ridiculous in theory, it looks pretty damn comfortable. Basically, it's a jogging suit that has cushions built into it. Lay down on the ground and you've got an automatic bed. The Anti-Anti-Homeless Spikes Project has taken a more direct approach and they set up a mattress glued over a set of spikes in London, inviting anyone to spend the night there. Picture the Homeless, an advocacy group in New York City has also launched a free to pee campaign in 2018 to try and bring more bathroom access to people living on the streets. Harvard Civil Liberties Law Review estimated in April, 2020, that the ratio of public restrooms can range from one restroom per 27 people to one restroom per 126 people in the 10 cities with the largest homeless populations. Without more public restrooms, viruses can spread easier. Not just COVID, but in 2017 and 2018, a grand jury report found that the lack of access to public toilets and handwashing contributed to a hepatitis A outbreak in San Diego that killed 20 people and made 600 sick. Architecture itself, from the lack of public restrooms to spikes, isn't set up to be kind to homeless people. Whether you believe that every example on today's episode was hostile or not, one thing does seem to be clear. No amount of spikes will simply rid a city of its homeless population. More needs to be done, and whatever that may be, it should be safe, effective, and hopefully kind. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode. I hope you learned something new here today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. If you want to connect with me outside of these episodes, make sure you go to my Linktree link. It's got links for all of my projects, social media, and other things that I'm involved with. So if you wanted to connect with me on other forms of social media, see what other projects I'm working on, go there. It's nice and neatly organized. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you learned something new about hostile architecture and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.